Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the panel tasked with reviewing Alberta's finances has presented its findings. Just how much of a mess are we dealing with here? The debate around standardized testing and whether it's the right way to measure student performance. Also, a new book looks at some of the myths around the male libido, plus banning books in school libraries, why Harry Potter is back in the censorship crosshairs. The panel report, I think, has done a very good job of, of laying out the need uh, to, to think about transformational change in the way we deliver all programs and services, but particularly healthcare. Transformational change, that's the term used by Alberta's finance minister, Travis Taves. And I think it speaks to, and it's hard to see here sitting in, in it today, but I think it speaks to the profound impact this report is going to have in the years to come. And I, I think it does probably set the stage for a lot of political battles. It's not meant to be a political report. Uh, the panel chair, Janice McKinnon, is both an academic and a, a former politician. But I, I think it is a serious and sober look at Alberta's finances and how we spend money in Alberta. And as profound as its findings are, I suppose at some level it's pointing out the obvious, that Alberta spends more per capita than other provinces. If we spent per capita, whether other provinces spend, we probably wouldn't have a deficit at all, or certainly much less than what we have now. Getting to that might be easier said than done, however. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on this report and where we go from here, very pleased to welcome to the program Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the U of C School of Public Policy. Trevor, thanks for joining us here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, your initial uh, impressions of the report and how thorough this report was and, and its findings. So, so I do agree that it is a thorough look at uh, the many major areas of public spending in Alberta, primarily healthcare. So a lot to be said on that. But the report is quite comprehensive. It was not just a report looking at spending. We can talk more about that in a sec. But it also looks at uh, the revenue side of, of the budget. Not, not a, I don't mean raising new taxes, but it highlights a very serious issue in Alberta, and that's the difficulty of budgeting in a province that has a very volatile um, and important source of revenue, which is royalties from natural resources. So that was section one. It came right before the uh, the sections detailing the spending issues in the province. And then later on, the report um, focuses on the broader fiscal framework of the province. You know, where do we go longer term, you know, beyond balancing just in 2022? There's a problem with the process of budgeting in the province that this highlights 
or that this report highlights. Yeah. So that was really good to see. Yeah, it's interesting too. You touch on it because um, you know people are criticizing Janice McKinnon for talking about revenue and, and revenue diversification and, and concluding that we don't have a revenue problem, even though revenue wasn't necessarily a part of their mandate. But I think if you talk about the reason why spending is high, it, it, it goes back to the, the volatility of our revenue sources. Yeah, in good times, I think this is quite clear that politicians here have found it easier to ratchet spending up when royalty revenues are, are flowing in rather than the alternative of saving those revenues. And then when oil prices fall and those royalty revenues fall with them, it's difficult to cut back on spending. So it's volatility in spending going up in good times with oil prices that has led to challenges when oil prices fall. And, and fundamentally, that's a challenge of budgeting based on resource revenues. And we need to shift that revenue mix. And this report did highlight it. And I guess I want to reiterate that because I wasn't expecting so much attention on revenue in a report by a panel mandated to look only at spending. Well, and it's interesting because uh, that speaks to diversification, diversification of revenue, right. not diversification of the economy, as, as uh, you know, some were suggesting today. Th- those are two very different things, aren't they're they? They're completely different things, and they're confounded regularly. Any kind of structural change to the economy, whatever the pros and cons you might think of that, really has n- almost nothing to do with the budget challenges faced by the province. So we choose to rely so much on royalty revenues. It's volatile, it's risky, but it's a choice we make. It's not the economy's fault. It's our own budgeting processes that have led us to this situation. Well, you wrote recently, you had a piece in in Alberta Views, which I I would encourage people to read, but you write, Alberta's deficit is a choice. We choose low taxes, we choose high spending, and we pray resource revenues make up the difference. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And, And Alberta's in this unique and I think privileged situation where as large as our fiscal challenges may seem, we have a lot of options. We have options on the spending side that can completely close the gap. We have options on the revenue side too. And of course, people will differ in terms of what approach they prefer. But as this report shows, balancing by 2022 does not require draconian cuts. It just requires maintaining a spending freeze over three years. So it requires some restraint. And yeah, that's not going to be not going to be easy. And some people won't support it or would prefer a sales tax, for example. But we're in a very different situation than a province like Newfoundland, where they have to do both revenue and spending measures uh, in order to address their challenges. Yeah. But it is interesting because it, it, you, know, you can sit here today and you can make a credible argument that we don't have a revenue problem. However, if we made a decision that we were going to put all of those resource revenues into our savings, well, then we would have a revenue problem because That's we would need right. to make that up somehow. That's right. So I think the right way to think about this is not overly simplifying it in terms of revenue problem or spending problem. We have both problems. Every province has both problems. We, we just need to understand what our problems are. This report highlights a particular revenue problem, and that's volatility. And it also highlights a particular spending problem in, in health and, and, yes, in post-secondary uh, as well, that the government, even if it didn't have a deficit, should probably take a look at. It's just hard to explain why we spend so much on health care here, despite the young population. So something's up and something requires a close look 
by government in this panel report um, might encourage them to do that. Yeah, and it's interesting. This came up earlier, and someone wondered whether Alberta's population, old population, the person suggested, was was a reason why we spend more. And it's the opposite. We should actually be spending less, theoretically. So we have been seeing the effects of an aging population right now. So starting around 2010, the aging that we have seen since then has added about 10% to our total healthcare spending. So some fraction of the spending growth is due to aging, but that's also true in other provinces. We spend more here uh, relative to those other provinces uh, in an amount that's kind of like not explained at all, just by demographics aging here faster than elsewhere. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely the reverse. And they highlight that if we spent the same amount as the other major provinces, spending would grow by a little over $3 billion, I think they referenced at the press conference. But if we spent what we ought to be spending, given our demographics, we would save about $5 billion or so. And it's interesting because we, we get two kind of polar opposite views that um, that it would be relatively simple to transition our per capita spending to what other stable Canadian provinces spend. And the other view that, you know, cutting spending is going to be catastrophic. I, <laughs> maybe the truth is somewhere in between, but, but how yeah. difficult is it to, to address all of this? I, I think it will be difficult because a, a lot of this spending, you know, we can talk about spending in the abstract, but a, a large majority of the actual spending that we're talking about is labor compensation. So 60% of what we spend on hospitals, for example, is paying workers at those hospitals. So spending restraint does mean lowering incomes of identifiable groups, and we're going to see a lot of pushback, understandably, uh, from those groups. And physicians, they were singled out by the report. Physician compensation here is demonstrably higher than elsewhere. And so I think changing the fee schedule, changing what doctors are paid, that's going to be something that the government looks at, and there's going to be clear pushback there. So it's it's not easy in the sense that no one is affected negatively by the changes, but uh, if done gradually, gradually and sensibly in a way where people can understand at least why things are being done, and this report helps with that, then it can maybe smooth that process. Right, because I, I don't think it should be controversial that we, we look at what we're getting for our dollar. I mean, if, if you can make an argument that, you know, we, we spend the most on health care per capita, but we have the best system in the country, that, that would be a different kind of conversation. I mean, it seems, I, I think, fairly reasonable to at least say, why is it that we don't have the best system in the country? What are those inefficiencies uh, that, that, are, that are contributing to this, this situation? Yeah, another challenge, and this might be a particular challenge for, for this government, is what happens in rural areas. Our health facilities throughout the province may be larger than their local communities justify. And that might be a reason why we spend more on hospitals here than other major provinces. And that's the biggest piece of our healthcare spending budget and the biggest piece of why we spend more here than elsewhere. Uh, so there was the suggestion today that, that there is going to be further study of our, our revenue mix mm-hmm. in Alberta. Is it, is it your sense that, that you know, we're, we're going to have that conversation as well? I sure hope so, because balancing by 2022 is not the whole challenge here. And this report does lay out that paying down the debt over the coming 20 years or so, I think they go out to 2042, that will require action take place after we balance the books. And an aging population will continue to add pressure in healthcare through the 2020s. So 
the government has said that there's going to be another panel later in their mandate, and potentially maybe what we're seeing here is they're going to take really um, really demonstrable uh, restraint on the spending side in order to gain political capital to have a conversation on, on revenue. So there might be an issue of doing spending first before we talk about revenue, but I think we do, if only to shift off of resource revenue. So introducing a sales tax does not necessarily mean that government revenue should rise. You could just swap it for other revenue sources, and that's something that we should talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, maybe this maybe this is the premier to have that conversation. <laughs> you know, only Nixon could go to China, right? That that old adage. Yeah, but. it may very well be. I'll leave that <laughs> to uh, political types. I yeah, indeed. Uh, Trevor, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you. You bet. All right. Uh, Trevor Toome, uh, Professor of Economics, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Um, yeah, I don't know. Would that have more credibility coming from Jason Kenney if he said we're going to bring in a sales tax, but we're also going to lower other taxes? We're simply changing the tax mix. We're not increasing overall government revenues. I, I think it would be perceived differently if it had been Premier Rachel Notley saying, hey, guys, I, you know, I'm kind of in the mood for a sales tax. All right, our ongoing Alberta Matters series. Uh, today, we're focusing on the issue of standardized testing. It's been an, uh, an issue of controversy in Alberta, uh, given the decisions made by the previous government uh, and plans by the current government around the grade three standardized testing. But it's an issue that's being debated elsewhere around Canada and even beyond, whether standardized testing uh, is a valid way of measuring student success, whether standardized tests are worth the time and the expense. Here's an overview from Global News reporter Heather Urex-West. Standardized tests have become standard practice across most of the country, but not everyone likes the exams. Education researcher Elaine Simp says having students write standardized tests before graduating high school makes sense because it helps post-secondary institutions see where a student is at. But she says the process is less effective when used for younger learners. A growing body of research has found the benefits to these tests are limited and don't actually lead to better education outcomes, which may be why some provinces are moving away from the exams. In Manitoba, elementary students are assessed using classroom work instead. And in Ontario, a report last year recommended tests at the grade 3 level be phased out, something the Alberta government did back in 2013, though that province recently announced grade 3 tests would be reintroduced in the coming years. Heather Urex-West Global News, Calgary. All right, so how do we gauge the effectiveness of standardized testing? And what is it we want standardized testing to do? Well, joining us for some thoughts on, on that side of it, very pleased to welcome to the program, Louis Vellante. He's a professor in the Department of Educational Studies at Brock University. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, certainly it's a contentious issue in many provinces, and I know Alberta's going through this debate. From your own perspective, how, how do we approach this issue? How should we look at the question of whether standardized testing is beneficial? Well, I mean, there's a few things that you need to consider. Number one, what is the test measuring, what, or what is it purporting to measure? Um, how is the test going to be used? So is it going to be used for... Um, yeah, school improvement purposes, which is primarily how standardized tests in Canada are used, and at what ages are they going to be introduced? So those are three things to think about, um, and then you can layer on top of that 
How will the results be communicated to parents, to the general public? Those are all things to consider. It's no one single variable that will predict whether the, the use of standardized tests will um, lead to positive outcomes for a, an education system or some negative unintended consequences, which we see all over the world. Uh, and, and what are some of those? Well, you have a lot of teaching to the test. So, mm-hmm. for instance, um, it's well known pretty much everywhere when you introduce standardized tests that are used for accountability purposes. You have it, uh, education systems, whether they're provincial or national systems. Tend, teachers tend to narrow the curriculum, focus on the test content to the exclusion of non-tested subject matter Um Often it's done under this mantra of standards-based reform, this whole idea of back to basics, um, which is really a, a very, very outdated notion. And I mean, what what is basic nowadays is changing as we speak, right? So traditional tests that you and I might have taken as students, I am 48, um, looking at students' acquisition of knowledge is largely outdated. Students can just Google that information. So... That goes back to my earlier comment around, you know, what is the test measuring or purporting to measure? How is it constructed? Um, how is it communicated? What age groups? Uh, my understanding is that you're introducing the reintroducing these tests to grade three students, mm-hmm. which would be eight years old, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a little bit too young, if I'm being honest with you. Um, you know, if you were to look at um, academic journals 30 years ago and typed in test anxiety, it was a concept that only showed up in, in it, essentially for college students in the United States, what we consider university students. Now we're seeing students as young as seven, eight, nine years old um, reporting test anxiety largely as a consequence of, you know, just the the um, the pressure that's put on them to perform and, and the kinds of um, consequences that are attached to those test scores. In terms of the question of literacy skills and, and an education system that's aimed at equipping students with these schools to have the means to have a mechanism to to essentially see whether we're doing our job. Testing is seen as that, as kind of a reflection of where kids are at. But does this also entail maybe a, a rethinking of what the, those liter- literacy skills are? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I mean, traditionally there's been four domains to literacy, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. You personally, you can't do your job unless you speak and listen effectively, Right. And no standardized test can actually measure those two domains. When you layer on top of that media literacy, which, you know, some provinces have introduced in terms of their curriculum expectations, in fact, most have, uh, and then you start looking at digital literacy as an example, then you start to get an understanding of how our, our notion of literacy has changed. I mean, you've heard of the PISA test that tests 15-year-old students around the world. I'm right. pretty sure you've heard of it. Uh, well, they're introducing a digital um, digital literacy, digital learning um, assessment in um, 2024. They have creative thinking coming in in 2021. So if you think about the, the most famous or the, the test that gets the most media hype because it, it measures uh, educational outcomes across 80 different jurisdictions, right? Different countries slash jurisdictions. Even the OECD has conceded that multiple choice tests and 
focus on reading literacy, math literacy, and science literacy is insufficient. It might be necessary, but it's insufficient. So I don't know what Alberta is doing in terms of, I haven't seen the details in terms of what the test will look like. I, I probably would guess that they haven't developed the test completely yet or they're pilot testing it. So we don't really know. We can't comment. But um, from my experience, most uh, governments that start talking about basics, it's usually a red flag that uh, it's minimal competency testing. And we really don't need that. We need, we need tests that measure the types of skills that students need for 21st century learning. Well, when you mention those tests, and I, I know, you know, as you say, they, these are global tests, these piece of tests, and, and obviously are taken very seriously. What, what can we learn from, from the countries, countries like Singapore, that, that do very well on these tests? Yeah, and I mean, I, I've written a book about this called uh, The Peace Effect on Global Education Governance by Rutledge. That's my little infomercial. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't run out and buy it. But in any case, what, what I did is I looked at how different jurisdictions around the world we're looking at their own national results and comparing it to what you've referred to. Singapore, we refer to in the literature as a golden reference society because it's one of those high-achieving countries, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody now talks has heard about Finland. Well, why do they? Why have they heard about Finland? They heard they've heard about Finland because it initially did really, really well on PISA, and so people were sending delegations from their country over to study. Oh, how does Finland teach math, or now it's how does Singapore teach math. I'd be very guarded against that type of approach because there's so many contextual differences. Certainly there's some things that hold true across all educational jurisdictions that we can learn from. And I mean, those are well, well, those are already well known in the literature. Um, It's a question of, you know, do governments really want, I mean, they always say they're going to focus on evidence, right? Evidence-based policymaking. But often politics takes precedence over the evidence if it doesn't fit into their political paradigm. So, you know, if evidence were to show that, say, smaller class sizes for a particular age group uh, will lead to better educational outcomes, if that's not part of their political platform, they're likely to disregard that evidence. So one thing that I talk about is the difference between opinion-based policies, evidence-informed, which is kind of in the middle, and evidence-based, which is the ideal. I mean, ideally, we'd like governments all around the world to actually develop policies, whether they're assessment policies, curriculum policies based on evidence. Um, and, you know, I like I said, I haven't seen the details yet, but um, I'm somewhat skeptical that um, this reintroduction of grade three testing is going to deliver. Mm-hmm. Now, the broader question, I mean, even if we are to to change the way we assess literacy, we think how we approach uh, these these kinds of tasks, is there still a place in the educational system for broad-based testing where we have some means of, of assessing literacy and, and we apply it to, you know, across the board? Whether if we say it's 15-year-olds or 12-year-olds, whatever it is, that we can apply that in schools right across the province or across the jurisdiction and get a sense of where everybody's at? I have no problem with census-style testing, sorry, um, sampling-style testing, where you might sample a a group of students within a district. I don't think it's necessary to test every single student in every single classroom and report those results at the individual level. I think the, the more you focus on 
the test on an individual student and an individual classroom, the less sensitive the test is to pick up differences. And, and the reason why I say this is when you look at large-scale tests like PISA through the OECD, they're looking at a sample. And I actually trust those results more because there's less teaching to the test. There's less gaming within the system. There's less uh, uh, of an opportunity for an individual teacher to narrow their curriculum because chances are they're not going to actually be part of that test when they decide which schools in Canada and which students are going to participate. So if you actually really want to have valid results that you ha can have some faith in, you have to be very careful around individual tests at, for every single student within the province because there's, there's countless studies that have shown students' results on those tests don't necessarily mirror their knowledge. Well, some important points to consider. Professor Volante, thank you for your insight and appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. Take care. All right, you as well. Louis Volante, professor of the Department of Educational Studies, Brock University. His thoughts on standardized testing, something he's done a lot of research on. So I think he, he makes a couple of interesting points. The, the one part of all of this that he raises that I think is intriguing is the idea of doing more of a, a sample as opposed to having every single student, every single school doing these tests. It might cost less to do it for one. And you, you could still get a pretty reasonable uh, result in terms of what's going on out there. Uh, and, and, and then in that way, I mean, schools and students, they don't necessarily know if they're going to be the ones to get it. And so maybe you do reduce some of that teaching to the test. Now, this text here says, Rob, the test is on the curriculum. Teaching to the test is perfectly fine. I mean, ideally, if, if yeah, if the, if the test is about what students are supposed to be learning anyway, then teaching to the test is teaching to the curriculum. But teaching to the test also is teaching to a certain way of expressing that knowledge. Just because you can do well on a, um, on a multiple choice, for example, doesn't mean that you could also effectively write an essay about that topic or express that knowledge in a different way. Now, there's some standardized tests obviously that include a writing component uh they're, they're largely multiple choice but uh, i think in terms of teaching to a certain method and focusing on that as opposed to other ways of, of demonstrating that knowledge and, and learning i think is a valid criticism i do support standardized testing i'm not i'm less convinced that it's as beneficial uh for younger grades where testing is not really a, a big part of what they're doing anyway uh, so it certainly makes sense to me for, you know, grade six or grade nine or high school age kids. I mean, I'm less convinced about the value for grade three students. But at the same time, at least you're able to compare apples to apples. Is test anxiety real? Sure. But it's real for everybody. So if a school has uh, standardized test results, you know, 2014, and then all of a sudden in 2019, that same school has better results or worse results. Well, the test anxiety aspect kind of cancels itself out because the test anxiety existed five years ago. It exists now. So you're comparing the same school. You're comparing students with the same kind of test anxiety. But, wow, those results have gone up. Or, oh, my goodness, they've gone down. What's, what's going on here? All right, this next topic is, is I think, an interesting and important one. And it's not something we often talk about. Maybe because we're not comfortable talking about sex, and maybe because we have certain assumptions about the male sex drive. 
as the Globe and Mail described it recently, our cultural understanding of men's sex drive remains simplistic and leans on old cliches that male libido was always sky high, self-centered, and ready to go with practically anyone. Men who aren't this way are still treated as exceptions, not the rule. So do we lack a, a thorough understanding of the male libido? And, and is it important to really understand this? Well, a new book argues that we don't fully understand it and we really need to. Now, the book is called Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. Joining us on the line is the author of said book, relationship therapist and sex researcher Sarah Hunter-Murray. Sarah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, what prompted the book on your part? I mean, is it because that there's just a, you know, a lot of myths and misinformation out there? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a woman who was raised in our society, and as a sex researcher, I began studying um, women's sexual desire. I was fascinated by the complexities. We talk about when women aren't in the mood, all the things that can impact our desire from um, if we're feeling good, if we're stressed, if there's work demands, if we have kids. And I just started to notice that, one, there was a real absence of literature and research on men's sexual desire. And the second thing that I realized was the reason we had so little research on the topic was because we were making assumptions on all levels um, that men's sexual desire was pretty simplistic, that there was simply just this desire to have sex. We could take that for granted and like move on. Um, so I sought out to study men's sexual desire just to see, are the assumptions that we make on a social level accurate or potentially not so true? Um, and of course, as the title of my book suggests, um, I found uh, through talking to hundreds of men, both through research and therapy, that there's a lot more going on to men's sexual desire uh, than meets the eye. Does that mean there's a, there's a lot we don't know or that, that, that knowledge is out there, just we're, we're not looking for it? Um, the research is slowly coming about. Um, and so what I thought was interesting is that we haven't really been asking men. It's not that men's sexual desire is necessarily changing. It's not that men today are having incredibly different experiences than men, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, but what I think it is is that we just haven't been asking. And so the first thing I did for, through my research was I interviewed men. So face-to-face -face interviews for approximately an hour. So you kind of get into the details. Um, and so what I noticed was that men were starting to say things, they'd start their interviews that kind of lined up with certain stereotypes. So they'd say things like, yes, I'm always in the mood, my desire is pretty high, I've never met a woman who wants more sex than I do. Um, and then as I kind of just started asking a few more questions, we started hearing more exceptions to the rule. Oh, you know, maybe I'm not in the mood if I'm feeling sick or if I've had a really long day. And then some of the emotional things started coming up. If men were feeling disconnected from their partner, um, you know, if they weren't feeling so great about their self-esteem, there was a lot of things, body image, um, mm -hmm. that men started to kind of describe that impacted their sexual desire. And so what I think is really interesting is that men have been as <laughs> complex all along, but we just haven't really been giving um, space to actually ask those questions and see really how men's desire is impacted. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it seems that the tendency is, is to treat the physical. I mean, Viagra is a, a great example of, of that where we, we're sort of assuming that the drive is there and here's something to address what might physically be holding you back from that. But in terms of these mm -hmm. deeper issues, you know, stress and relationship issues, emotional, psychological, we, we don't seem to focus on that as much. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the relational component is a key thing. Um, you know, men talk in, over the course of my research and therapy about how sex isn't just about sexual gratification. Um, you know, of course, sex ideally feels good. There's nothing wrong with wanting the sexual pleasure that comes with sex. Um, but men were really talking about how sex was a way to feel close, to feel vulnerable, to feel emotionally open with their partner. Um, and again, when those things are, if there's risks, if there's fighting, if there's disconnect, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily, men were describing that they're not necessarily jumping off their seats to have sex when they're not feeling so connected to their partner. Mm-hmm. Is it something that men are not just reluctant to talk about, but really even reluctant to acknowledge that there's something, you know, linked to, to masculinity with, with sex drive, that if, if you're not in the mood, that maybe there's, you know, there's something wrong with you? Yeah, so, um, you know, men um, that I've, I've spoken with kind of identify that, that they're is awareness of what that stereotype is. And I think we all kind of know that stereotype, right? We hear that idea of men are in the mood any moment. They're, you know, sex is the most important thing. Um, they're only out for one thing. We have that narrative around men's sexual desire. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, that is a very narrow stereotype. And men seem to be more and more critical over the course of my research of that stereotype being, um, you know, we kind of use that masculinity. I think there could be a very healthy masculinity, but their toxic masculinity or feeling that mm-hmm. there's only one type of way to be masculine. Um, men did talk about how there was that expectation that they should be ready for sex at the drop of a hat. Um, sometimes men talked about how they had their own difficulties internalizing that. What happens when I'm not in the mood? What happens when I don't feel like sex? What happens if I turn it down? Um, but they also talked about how they were worried how it would come across to a female partner. So the men in my research um, identified as heterosexual, and I was particularly interested in those male-female dynamics. Um, but a lot of men talked about how they were worried that their female partner would take it personally if he turned down her sexual advances or wasn't in the mood one night. But, and that's, it's interesting because there's a perception that maybe that there's a double standard, that if a, you know, a woman says she's not in the mood, that it's, oh, okay, well, you know, I mean, that's understandable. That's mm-hmm. maybe how women are. If, if a man mm-hmm. says it, it's, it seems weird and what's going on, it, it, it seems to get a different kind of reaction. Is that true? Absolutely. I think we have a lot of space for women to experience low sexual desire, to not be in the mood. Um, you know, we have the whole vernacular around, uh, not tonight, honey, I've got a headache. Right. Um, but we really don't give that same language or attention to, to men. Um, what we know from the research is about 15% of men um, across studies report having problematic low sexual desire. So it's certainly not uncommon. And when we look even closer at men and women who are in relationships with one another, um, even though we have this stereotype that men have high sex drives and women have kind of lower sex drives, when we look at men and women who are dating, so cross variation, men are no more likely to be the partner with higher sex drives. So that means, um, you know, in about a third of the cases, men have a higher interest and about a third of relationships, women have a higher interest and about a third, it's kind of an even, um, there's not really much of a discrepancy there. So that means there's a lot of relationships between men and women where men don't have higher sex drives and then it can cause a lot of problems and misunderstandings between men and women given when it goes against the norm like that. Right. So does it suggest then that maybe when it comes to the relationship dynamic and feeling comfortable and secure in the relationship, that, that, it's, that there are a lot more similarities maybe between men, men and women than we realize? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's some narrow stereotypes that both men and women have been raised to um, believe are true or feel that they need to play into. And it's not to say that there are no differences between men and women. I mean, it's okay to talk about our similarities and our differences. But I think when it comes to sex, 
and sex drive specifically. We've been focusing far too much on this, these really different ideas that men are sex crazed, um, you know, the ones who should be dominant, the pursuer of sexual activity, the ones who objectify, the ones who like um, chase and, you know, flirt with the woman and the women are the gatekeepers who have low desire, who are demure. And I think it does a disservice to both men and women to be talking about our sex drive so differently. It's okay for some variation, but I think it's about time we have a conversation about some of the more nuanced and emotional sides of men's sexual desire and give space for women to step into more dominant sexual mm-hmm. roles as well. As you said at the outset, this isn't necessarily new. I, I do wonder, though, because we, we hear about these studies that suggest younger people are, are having less sex. But does that necessarily tell us anything about, about libido, about sex drive? Yeah, the studies are, um, it's complex when you get into some of the younger generations because we're talking also about, um, you know, social connection and, um, you know, being on, on cell phones and smartphones and things like that. And so it's hard to kind of know how much that's all related. I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done in that area to understand if there's a change, if the next generation is kind of different in terms of level of libido. Um, but over the course of my research, I did include men 18 to 65. So these were all men who are identified as heterosexual and in long-term relationships, so at least of six months or longer. Um, but, you know, the, the themes that came up were, were pretty similar, whether men were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s. But certainly when it comes to relationships and how men view sex as, as an integral part of the relationship, I, I mean, clearly that, that's, that's still the case. And I, I would assume then that that intimacy is, is as important for women, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, intimacy is an integral part of romantic long-term relationships. We all have different ways that we might um, prefer to um, experience that. So some of us might be more inclined to kind of cuddle and kiss. Some people might like sex. Some of us, most of us probably like a little bit of all of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, men are kind of um, you know, over the course of my research and, and therapy, what I've heard is, you know, men really kind of get this idea that they're not, there's not as much space to talk about emotions. There's not as much space to just be touchy and like to hold hands, right? That's kind of considered more feminine characteristics. Um, men, however, are rewarded socially for pursuing sexual activity. And so I, what I'm starting to learn, I think, and hearing more and more is that when men feel emotionally disconnected, sometimes their way of feeling close again is to initiate sex. That's the way that they've been taught is a way to feel close. They get to feel, um, you know, skin to skin contact. It comes with the making out. You feel kind of relaxed and mm-hmm. vulnerable. Um, and so I think in, in terms of, um, you know, we want to promote intimacy in relationships. And I think being a little more curious about whether we assume that our partner just wants sex, which isn't such a sexy uh, romantic thought, or if he wants to feel emotionally connected, he wants to feel closer. Um, it's really important for us to kind of question if we've got misunderstandings around how our partner is trying to feel closer to us so that we can really enhance our intimacy and not let sex be something that drives men and women away. Right. So in terms of what you, you hope men take from this book and women take from this book, I, I think you kind of you hinted at it there, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing and, and what I hear, um, you know, when I do interviews like this or, or when um, folks have been reading my book or, or blog posts on the topic is men really talk about how they feel validated in a lot of cases. It's not to say that the new norm is that men have low sex drives or anything like that. The purpose of my book is to kind of highlight these different ways that men's sexual desire has been mischaracterized. Um, and a lot of men say, oh, I didn't know it was, it, like, I thought it was just me. I didn't know that other men talk like this. They talk about how the locker room chat is, oh, hey, you know, did you did you get laid last night? Or, you know, we're just yes. kind of talking about how attractive other women are. It's always this kind of, um, you know, language that highlights this high sex drive that men should have. 
And a lot of men really talk about how they're just so relieved that we're talking about the emotional side, that we're talking about times where they're not in the mood. We're talking about how, um, you know, stress and being a parent and a, like a father can impact sexual desire. So I think it's just leaving space for more um, variation for men and kind of that validation that, you know, if, if men don't meet that really stereotypical want sex at the drop of a hat, easy to turn on, want sex any moment, um, that there's something wrong with them. Yeah, um, and what I hear from women who are in relationships with men <laughs> are that they start understanding their male partner a bit better, that you know, they, we're all exposed to those stereotypes about men's sexual desire. And, and so a lot of women, like we are raised in a society, it's natural to feel that that's the way that men are or the way men should be. And so I think a lot of times women are finding that if they kind of question, you know, is this really what my partner is trying to get across? Does he just want sex? Again, not always such a sexy thought or does he really want to be in with me and connected to me um it leaves a little more space to kind of potentially be open to that connection or find other ways to connect more intimately yeah well some very important issues the book is called not always in the mood the new science of men's sex and relationships much more at sarahhuntermurray.com sarah thanks so much for joining us here today really appreciate the conversation Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Sarah Hunter-Murray, uh, the book is called Not Always in the Mood. You can also find her on Twitter at Sarah at Sarah with an H. So when it comes to the freedom to read, to what extent does that apply to students? To, to what extent does that apply to school libraries and kids being exposed to potentially controversial topics or, or books? And it seems not a year goes by where there's not some controversy about some book. And there are books that deal with complex and controversial topics. Lately, there's been controversy uh, about uh, books dealing with LGBTQ issues. Uh, also controversy uh, around books that might seem outdated. Uh, certain views or perspectives uh, expressed in books written many decades ago, maybe seem out of place or contain what are now viewed as, as racist kind of kind of views. Those have been books of, of concern and controversy. Uh, but there's also fiction books. And the Harry Potter book series, for as popular as those books have been, have also been at the center of a lot of this controversy. Back in 1999, when the first Harry Potter book was published in the U.S., According to the American Library Association, it was the most frequently challenged book in the U.S. for 1999. And the controversy didn't end there. In fact, even now, we're still talking about Harry Potter books. The story today, a Catholic school in Nashville, Tennessee, has banned the Harry Potter series because a reverend of the school claims the books include both good and evil magic, as well as spells which, if read by a human, can conjure evil spirits. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, Interim Director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Uh, much more at ALA.org. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All right. So what, what do you make of this latest Harry Potter controversy? Well, we're not quite surprised by it. Um, this isn't the first time uh, a religious school has removed Harry Potter from its library shelves based on the fact that it has witchcraft or occult themes in the book. Um, 
we there was a, another Catholic school in 2007 in Wakefield, Massachusetts, that removed the books for the very same reason. Um, and there have been, from time to time, uh, criticisms of the Harry Potter series in the Catholic press by uh, certain persons, including uh, Cardinal Rat- Ratzinger at one time uh, had published a critique of the series in one of the Vatican newspapers. Um, So the fact that these books are being critiqued from a religious viewpoint uh, and even removed from a parochial school library shelf is not really surprising to us. Although I will say that we've seen a real decline in challenges to Harry Potter over the last few years um, as it's become more and more accepted as a modern classic of children's Mm -hmm. literature. But for a while, there there was a lot of controversy, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. From as you said in your introduction, from the very date it was published, there have been challenges to Harry Potter, um, including uh, ritual burnings of the book by some churches. Um, uh, uh, objections to it because of witchcraft, Satanism. Um, there is actually a parent in Georgia that um, uh, who uh, who asked for the books to be removed from all Georgia public schools on the grounds that it taught the Wiccan religion, and she took her appeal all the way to the top, all the way to the Georgia school board, and had it had it reviewed by a court. Uh, ultimately, of course, the decision was to keep the books in the schools, um, which uh, was all but required by uh, our First Amendment here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it raises these interesting issues of, of freedom of expression, the freedom to read, uh, but also the fact that we are talking about children, we're talking about a school setting. So, mm-hmm. obviously, Harry Potter is not required reading. It's it's not part of the curriculum. But but how do schools and school boards need to approach this question of of what's allowed in the library? Well, we believe that a school library should augment and support the curriculum. So, of course, you have books in the library that support the curriculum being pursued by the instructors in the school. But you also want to create a love of reading. You want to create a foster creativity, foster imagination. And you do that by including a broad range of works of fiction. And you also want to make sure that individuals feel included uh, in their community. So you want books that reflect the actual lives of students and their families. So this means collecting a diversity of materials um, and that uh, inspire imagination, that reflect the modern world. And what this inevitably means is that you're going to have some books that are controversial uh, in the eyes of some uh, individual or group. Um, in some cases, uh, it's LGBTQ-themed materials, um, which, uh, you know, are desperately needed by so many young people who are dealing with questions about their gender identity, their sexual identity, um, or young younger children who come from families that are head, headed by same-sex parents and want to, and really need to see their families reflected in the books uh, that are in the school library. Mm-hmm. Um, or you'll have books that challenge uh, traditional views about religion or beliefs, such as the Harry Potter books. 
um, one thing that I find interesting about the Harry Potter books is they are not only challenged because of religious viewpoint, uh, but also because many people believe that they encourage young people to question authority, uh, to act in defiance of adults. And so they believe the book shouldn't be available to young people for that reason. So, I mean, is there a clear line? Is, is, it, is it possible to classify books then as adult content, genuinely adult content, the kind of book that shouldn't be in a school library versus what seems like you're simply trying to prevent kids from being exposed to other ideas or different ways of looking at the world? Well, certainly you want a library in, in schools in particular, in the classrooms and in the school library. You want books that match the age, the developmental um, uh, stage of the students in the school and approach the topic from that level. Um, so, yes, you're not going to have uh, adult literature that you read in a university course in, in a library intended for K through fifth grade uh, students. Uh, on the other hand, the books that are there can reflect this diversity of views, and really there should be no reason to suppress the books. Um, we do believe that a parent has a right to guide their child's reading, and uh, but it's only the parent who should guide that child's reading. A parent should not be able to impose their values on the entire school or uh, demand that everyone stop reading a particular book or not have access to a particular book because of their own personal beliefs. Uh, and that's really where we, we draw the line. We think that everyone should have the choice, that everyone should have the freedom to read. And if anything, you know, even children have First Amendment rights. Uh, that at least here in the United States, we actually had a court rule that students had a right to access Harry Potter books in the school library without restriction and without rec- needing the, uh, a parent's written permission slip to read the books. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this is the month each year where the American Library Association calls attention to these issues. Banned Books Week is September 22nd to 28th this year, and it's kind of an opportunity to, to call attention to all of these issues, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I know that in, in Canada you have Freedom to Read Week, mm-hmm. and for us it's Banned Books Week, but it's our time to celebrate our freedom to read and consider ideas without interference, uh, to promote uh, literacy, to promote um, uh, and celebrate the fact that we do have libraries and schools that make all this learning available to us. Well, much more is mentioned, ALA.org. Deborah, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me as a guest. I All appreciate right. the opportunity. Take care. Thanks. Deborah Caldwell-Stone, Interim Director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Uh, so speaking out about these kind of book bans and what seems in this case to be a pretty silly reason for banning a book, certainly uh, a book as popular as Harry Potter. As she says, ultimately, it's up to you as a parent, I guess, what your kid reads. It would seem really strange, I think, in my own opinion, to to forbid your child from reading the Harry Potter books. And I think for a lot of parents, you know, the fact that a child would be interested in reading anything is is encouraging. Uh, but the idea that kids are going to be conjuring spirits by reading a, a popular children's uh, book seems seems rather curious to me, to say the least. But it's interesting, when it comes to books in schools, there, there's an impulse to yank books. And it comes, I think, you know, broadly speaking, from both the right and the left. 
you know, controversy around books like Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer. You know, this, you know, the impulse to pull those kinds of books, it comes from more that the politically correct kind of liberal perspective that these books have offensive views or offensive words. So we have to get those books out of the school and then people on the right cry censorship. And then uh, you get these issues that deal with sexual orientation or gender. And uh, you get people on the right saying, we got to get those books out of schools. Kids shouldn't be reading that stuff. And then it's the left that cries censorship. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.